You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Faith in Jesus in particular. And who he is and what he's done and those kind of things. But there are tons of notions today of what faith is that are circulating and we need to talk about that. We can have faith in science, we're told today. Or have faith in faith itself. Or there's an old George Michael song, you got to have faith, which is almost blasphemous when it comes to understanding what biblical faith is all about. So what do we mean by faith? What are we saying when we as a Christian say that we believe? What does that mean? Or when we ask someone else who's an unbeliever to believe in Jesus Christ, what are we asking them to do? What is faith anyway? To answer that question, we're going to be looking at an event in the life of Abram before his name was changed to Abram. And an incident which is of profound importance for us if we are to understand what faith is all about. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And so it has a direct bearing on how we, as New Testament believers, understand faith. It's not just something that happened way back in ancient history in Israel. But it's something that concerns us. So as we look at this text, I want us to focus on two things. First of all, the context of faith. That is the setting in which Abraham's faith comes to expression. And then secondly, the character of faith. That is what faith really is all about. What does it do? How does it express itself? So now hear with me God's word from Genesis chapter 15, the first six verses. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, as we, your people, come into your presence this evening, we delight to be able to call you Father. We come as your children, longing to hear your word speak to us, a word of comfort, a word of assurance a word to strengthen our faith. We confess to your Lord the weakness of our faith. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we would hear your word and respond in faith this night to the glory of your precious name. In the name of Jesus, 
in whose name we ask it. Amen. First of all, as we look at this passage and look at the context of faith, we see that Abram's faith didn't just spring up out of a void. He didn't just wake up on the day that we see here and say, oh, I'm going to believe in God today. There's a long history. Abram was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees and walked 1,800 miles. And God says, I'm going to show you the land, which meant that every day Abram got up, he had to ask God, okay, which way today, Lord? There was an ongoing, long-standing relationship that had developed over the years that it had taken to bring Abram to this place. Abram had gone down into Egypt, had done a lot of other things. And so the context that we need to understand, if we're going to understand what Abram's faith is all about, is one that there's a relationship between him and the Lord God. It didn't just happen. But his faith flows out of a very definite context. He had gotten to know who God was. He had seen his provision day in, day out over a long period of time. He had come to rely on this God. So the statement we see here is nothing new in a sense. It flows out of a history of a relationship of trust that Abram had with God. But also we need to look at this passage and see the structure of it. As some of you know, I love the Old Testament and teach the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is tremendously structured. And particularly here, this passage is one where it's a back and forth. God speaks, Abram responds. God speaks again, Abram responds again. And God speaks again. And that's not a coincidence. If we're going to understand what faith is, we have to see that context. God speaking, Abram responding to the word of God. Faith apart from the word of God cannot happen. It's always a response to God's word. When we look at this, we see God speaking in verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 are Abram's response. God speaks again in verses 4 and 5. Abram responds in the first part of verse 6, and then God responds in 6b with an amazing statement regarding Abram. It's not a matter that Abram concentrated and kind of worked up faith. One day, just said, okay, I'm going to believe and I'm just going to really work hard at this and I'm going to be a a really good guy and God's going to like me and say good things about me. No, it's in the context of God speaking to him. This communion with the living God that faith comes out of that context. And so it is with each of us. We're not going to wake up one day and say, oh, now I've got this great faith. We have to be have that faith bedded into the word of God, rooted in the word of God. Our faith is always going to be a response to the word of God. As we look at this as well, we see that God takes the initiative. He takes the initiative in all of Abram's life. There's nothing about Abraham except for before we see God call him out of Ur of the Chaldees. God is sovereign in the whole of Abram's relationship. That entire relationship between God and Abram has been a result of God doing things and calling Abraham and being involved in his life. Abram does nothing to earn or merit it. There's no indication whatsoever that Abram had done something to attract God's attention and to earn his favor. God simply sovereignly chooses to reveal himself to Abram, to speak with him. And God's initiative takes the form of God revealing himself in his word. He comes to Abraham and speaks to Abraham. 
In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, literally. It's not, re- not in the New in, uh, International Translation, but it's there in Hebrew. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him, saying. Verse 5, he took him outside and said. Verse 5 again, and he said to him. Over and over again, the emphasis is on God speaking to Abram. And we have to understand that. It's not just that Abraham, out of his own volition, decides to believe. God has spoken, and God's word brings that faith to expression. Faith flows out of a relationship with the living God. And it's a response to his revealed word. Faith is dependent on God revealing himself via his word to us. Paul echoes that in the New Testament in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, where he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we're going to return to that at the conclusion, but we need to see clearly that faith cannot be separated from the word of God. In fact, it is only in the context of the word of God that faith can have meaning and really grow. So now let's look at this exchange between God and Abram. First of all, God speaks. The the text begins after these things. So there's a separation from what's going on in chapter 14. And if you know what happened there, Abram went out. Lot had been taken captive. And so Abram bands together with some others and takes his household army of 300 men that can draw a sword and goes out and fights a battle and wins. And then as a result, the king of Sodom says, well, you can take some of the spoils. And Abraham refuses that. That's in the past now when we get to chapter 15. It's not like it just continues on. There's been a separation of time there. So it's not as a result of what Abraham did in that battle that now God is coming and speaking to him. This is a later period in Abraham's life. Further, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. This is the first thing that happened. God speaks to Abram. He reveals himself to Abram. Stop and think about that for a minute. This is absolutely amazing. We take this for granted that God is speaking to this person. But set it in its context. This recalls the situation of the Garden of Eden where God fellowshiped with Adam and Eve day in, day out. Face to face without sin. That's what we see here. But this is after the fall. God doesn't do this normally. He doesn't speak with his fallen sinful creatures. And yet that's what we see him doing here. This is an act of God's grace. That he comes and he speaks. He reveals himself to Abraham. Here after the fall. Every time in scripture that we read of God speaking or of giving his word. We need to understand that it's an act of grace. An act of revelation. And we need to understand the necessity of God to reveal himself. We would never know, just like Abraham, would never know who God is or what he's like if God didn't reveal himself to them. You don't know who I am unless you talk to me. That's the way it is with God as well. We don't know who he is unless he reveals himself to us. And that's exactly what he does here with Abraham. God speaks. And in speaking, he reveals who he is, what he's like, what he's going to do with Abram. We're not told exactly how, but the word of the Lord appears to Abram visually, that is in a vision. 
It's this word of God which conveys the promises of the covenant and the gospel. That was true for Abram, and it's true for us today. To believe, we need God to reveal himself in his word to us. That's necessary for faith. We need to always be ready to hear the word of God. We need to be listening attentively to what God says in his word. But we need to see the content of this revelation when God speaks to Abram. First thing he does is to calm Abram's fears. He says, don't be afraid. Now, why would Abram be afraid? Did he have any basis to be afraid about God in the past? There was nothing God did violently against him. So why would he be afraid? First and foremost, this is the holy creator God that's speaking to him. This is not an everyday event. We think that would be a really neat thing. But look through your scriptures and see when God appears to someone, do they just go, oh yeah, that's really great. Nice to see you. Think of, think of Isaiah. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. Literally, I am non-existent in the presence of the holy God. Abraham had a right to be afraid. This was God speaking to him audibly. But then also there's the human side. Abram was afraid that God's promises wouldn't come to fulfillment. He was getting old, and there's still no son, no seed, no heir. How would the promises be realized without a son? And you can feel his human concern. And so it causes, would the Germans say, angst. He was concerned. He was afraid. So God says, don't be afraid, Abram. Then he promises protection. <clears throat> when he says, I am a shield to you. The word that's used here for a shield is what a warrior carries into battle to protect them, to cover them. God's saying, I'm your covering, Abram. You don't need to worry about anything. Talk about something to calm your fears. If God is your shield, what do you need to be afraid of? And that's what he says to Abram. He says, I'm your shield, Abram. God is letting Abram know that he is, has defended and protected him in the past. It wasn't just a coincidence that Abraham won that war. God was his shield and has been with him and protected him. Here God is letting Abraham know that he is going to be with him even into the future. It's a word of encouragement. A word to put all fear to rest. God is going to be Abram's shield. It will be the creator with whom Abram has to do and who will be his protection. But he also promises provision. Finally, God speaks this provision. He says that he'll make for Abraham your great, your reward will be great. We have to remember that Abraham is just, and for good reason, refused the spoils of the war, which would have been a reward for fighting in the, in the war. And so you can think, well, maybe that was on his mind. But God says, your reward is going to be very great. And this is not saying to Abraham, if you do certain things, I'll reward you. We never have that in Scripture, where you work and God honors our works. It's always by grace. What God is saying here is, I'm going to be your reward, Abraham. This is to put all of his fears to rest. Abraham's reward, his delight is going to be God himself. He's going to be a shield to him, and he's going to be his provision God himself, what a way to allay fears of Abraham. What a word of comfort and of grace. What a revelation of who God is. He's our protection and our provision. 
And this is how the passage begins, with God's word of comfort and grace to Abraham. So now, how's Abraham going to respond to that word of grace, that word of comfort, of quelling all of his fears? We see that in verses 2 and 3. And Abram's response here in these two verses evidences a bit of uncertainty on his part. From the context, it's evident that this is not raw ingratitude or even unbelief on Abram's part. Rather, this is an expression that Abraham was a normal human being, just like us. He had worries and concerns and doubts. And so he voices them to God. And as he does so, he encourages us to take our worries and our concerns and our doubts to the Lord and voice them. In faith, but to voice them. But we see God graciously deal with him. He doesn't just say, I don't want to hear it, Abraham. Just believe. He doesn't do that at all, as we'll see. But Abraham here is thinking back at the promises that God had made to him, that he would be a great nation in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. Now, he's already become mighty. He has an army in his household of 300 men. And he's, he's got a lot of money as well. He has flocks that are an ex- exa- example of tremendous wealth. However, there's one thing lacking. He had no children. That fact raised the question in his mind, as it would in each of our minds, as to whether or not the promise would actually come to fulfillment or not. Abraham isn't concerned about military and political might. Rather, he's concerned about the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And that comes into expression in what he says to the Lord. He addresses God in verse 2 in response to God's statement to him, Sovereign Lord. What can you give me, since I am childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? When Abraham hears God's word, his response is literally to address God as Lord Yahweh. He combines two names of God. First, the Lord part means master. He's saying to God, I know you're my master. You're the sovereign over me. I'm putting myself underneath of your authority as your servant. But then he couples that with God's covenant name. The name that's I am that I am. The one who remains the same, unchanged. Especially with regard to his covenant promises. He's never going to go back on those promises. And Abraham is saying here, you're my Lord. You're the one who keeps covenant. This is a confession of faith on Abraham's part here. As he responds to God's word. The name of God is always used in the sense of one who keeps covenant. So God or Abraham addresses God as his master and his master who keeps covenant. And we need to keep that in mind lest we think that the response of Abraham is one of unbelief. He's acknowledging God's sovereignty and his covenant faithfulness as a confession of his faith. But he makes a request. And Abraham's response comes in the form of a Hebrew parallelism in verses 2 and 3. You have verse 2, and that's basically repeated in verse 3. And you have to understand that, so that it's not just that he's building on things. He's saying basically the same thing. Hebrews did that, to get the point across. (laughs) And so we see here in verse 2, What can you give me, since I remain childless? And that parallels in verse 3, You have given me no children. 
So there's this emphasis on children and the lack of them that Abraham's talking about. Then again in verse 2, the one who will inherit my estate is Eli Etzer of Damascus. And that parallels in verse 3, a servant in my household will be my heir. The parallelism makes plain that the concern of Abraham is that God has not given him a child who would be the heir of the promises that God had made to him. And that as a result, Eli Etzer would inherit Abram's estate and possibly the promises of the covenant as well. And that's in Abram's mind. And he's saying, what's up? What's going on here, Lord? Is this guy going to be the one? He doesn't know. Abram's concern is about these two interrelated matters, descendants and inheritance. You have to put yourself in his place. God's made these promises to have a seed. There's no seed. But he's got this nice servant here who's his steward, and he's saying to God, is he the one? Is he going to inherit everything, including the covenant promises? I don't have a child, so logically, this is the way it works. But then when we get to the idea about a child, literally in Hebrew it's a seed. And you have to understand this in its context, because there's a long history with this term as well. It goes back to Genesis, early, early on, after the fall. God comes in Genesis 3.15 and promises Eve that your seed is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There's a promised seed that's going to come. And that's the seed that Abraham has in mind here. It's Christ. And Abraham's concerned. What's going to happen? I don't have a child. You've promised a seed. Is he going to come? And before you say, well, wait a minute, Will. What's going on? That's a little bit stretched. Let me turn this on. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Here in John 8, verses 56 to 58, Jesus himself says, Your father Abram rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And have you seen Abram? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abram was born, I am. This is an unbelievable echo of what we see in Genesis 15. Abraham was looking forward to the coming of Christ and was concerned about that. His salvation depended on that seed to be born. She says, Lord, I don't have a child. What's happening here? So it's not merely that Abraham wanted an heir. He wanted Christ to come. You can look again over in, oh boy. Oh good, got it. In Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to his seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Again, Paul says that seed was Christ. Abraham was looking for Christ. Thus, when there's no seed, it shouldn't surprise us that Abraham was concerned about a child. In light of the fact that the fulfillment of all the promises of the future salvation depended upon that descendant being born, Abram, not improperly, seeks a pledge, a token of assurance to be given to him. Abram's response is an expression of concern for the fulfillment of the covenant promises. It's not unbelief. He believes, but he wants assurance that that will happen. 
It's also a recognition of the fulfillment would have to be God's doing. He says, you haven't given me a child. It's not something that I'm going to be able to produce. You have to give that to me. It has to be something that God does by his grace. That's Abram's response. Lord, did you really mean it? I'm concerned. Help me out here. So now how, God is, how is God going to respond to that? God speaks again in verses 4 and 5. And the same expression that we saw in verse 1 is repeated with just a little bit of a modification. Abram's name isn't, doesn't occur here, but the pronoun him occurs. Then the word of the Lord came to him. God's reaction to Abram's request was to speak with him. To pronounce, as we'll see, a word of confirmation, of promise. To assure him that all is well. That salvation would come. That there would be a seed that would come. First thing he does, though, in this word of assurance and comfort is to eliminate Eliezer as a, as a possibility. He explicitly eliminates him from being the one who is going to inherit anything. He says, in, he says further that he adds a word of promise and says that the one that's going to come is going to be of your own flesh and blood, out of your body. We need to keep in mind that this is just a promise at this point. Isaac isn't even on the horizon. God's just saying, he's coming. Don't worry about it. Put yourself in Abraham's place. You feel the tension? (laughs) Yeah, I got these nice promises from God, and I know he's a good God, and he's always been faithful. But I'm still left here wondering, what's going to happen? And God, rich in mercy... (laughs) understands that. So he says, Abraham, come on outside. He says, look up at the heavens and try to count the stars. You ever done that? It's one of my favorite pastimes. I should have been an astrophysicist. (laughs) I love to look at the stars. And when I retire, I'm going to get a telescope and I'm going to look at the stars. (laughs) They pointed when they launched the Hubble telescope and put it into outer Earth's atmosphere to, to look out into the heavens. They pointed it at a place where there was, to that point in time, nothing. It was a black space in the heavens. They thought, oh, I wonder what's out there. And the pictures that came back revealed not just lots more stars, but countless galaxies that they could tell, each one with billions of stars. Some say that <clears throat> our Milky Way contains 100 to 400 billion stars. That's our little tiny galaxy. In a, in a cosmos of billions and billions of galaxies. God spoke and all that happened. That's why God says to Abram, come on outside, look. See what my word does? See what my word of promise can do? God's not saying, you're going to count them, and that's how many descendants you're going to have, and you can hold me accountable to that. That's not what God's saying here. He's saying, my word produced that. My word is going to produce a seed. You can count on it. Just look at the stars. And your descendants will be like that. That which is created by the word of God's power. So how does Abram respond to that? We have verse 6. In one sense, Abraham doesn't do anything. And that's the point. He doesn't say, oh, now how can I earn this favor? He simply believes. He looks at the heavens and says, oh yeah, God did that. I believe that God can produce this seed that's going to come, my Redeemer. It's not about Abram. 
It's all about God and what he will do by his grace. It isn't about what Abraham does, but rather what God's word and what God is going to do through that word to bring it all to fulfillment. The text just says simply, Abram believed the Lord. He simply puts his faith in the Lord. He trusts God's word of promise. In effect, he says, okay, I believe you do exactly what you say you are going to do all the time. I trust you to bring it to fulfillment. And we're going to take a closer look at that when we get to the character of faith. But we need to just close this off and see what God responds to Abraham's faith. Because God speaks here. He credits it to him as righteousness. The word that's used here for credit means to consider, to esteem, to make a judgment. It's used in specialized form of judgment, which something is imputed to someone else. An imputation involves a legal pronouncement or a judgment which accredits something to someone's account, either positively or negatively. It's the pronouncement of the judge in a court of law, guilty, not guilty. And in the context here in uh, Genesis 15, 6, it has to do with God crediting righteousness to Abram. As though Abram were perfectly righteous, he pronounces him righteous. But what's righteousness? It's not a word you hear too often in common speech today. And yet it's a word that has to do with government. It's especially not used (laughs) generally today in terms of government. Specifically in the context of the Old Testament, it's what a good king does. He administers justice and does what's lawful. In the Old Testament, righteousness is most frequently used as an attribute of God. It's saying that God is a good king. He acts according to his nature, which is good and just. He keeps covenant. For man, it's an ethical matter. It involves doing what's good or right in God's eyes, according to his standard, both in relationship to him and to others. But it's much more than that. It's much more than just external conformity to an imposed external standard. It has to do with being pleasing and acceptable to someone out of love and respect. It involves doing what's pleasing to someone because you love them. In the Old Testament context, righteousness has to do with being pleasing to God so that that fellowship that was lost because of sin can be restored. It's a picture of salvation in its fullest sense. God is here saying that Abram meets his perfect standard. He's pronouncing Abram righteous before him. He's declaring that Abraham is pleasing in his sight. And in the language that we would use today, we we would say that God says you're saved at this point. The main point is that This pronouncement was not on the basis of anything that Abram had done to merit it. It's an act of God's grace. God's saying, Abram, I know you believe my word. That word of promise about the seed that will come. That he'll come and he'll bring your salvation and blessing. And I accept that faith as though you had lived a perfect life according to my standard. God accepts Abram's faith. Abram's trust in God's word and declares him righteous. This is the core of the gospel. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
This is confirmed by what Paul says in Romans 4, verses 3 through 5, that we, faith is credited as righteousness at the very end of that. Or again in, in Romans 4, verses 18 through 25, Paul dwells on this idea, ties it in with Abram, that we are saved by grace through faith. And that passage continues on in the latter part, verse 20 to 25. And it's important to see here, it says that Abram considered his body dead. And that God was able to even raise him up, if that's what had to happen, for that seed to come. Even after he was dead, God could raise him up so that he could produce a child. Just so you get the point, you can look at Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9. So those who have faith, who are descendants of Abram, who are justified and pronounced righteous by faith, as as was the case with Abram. But now we need to return to the question that we began with, what's faith all about anyway? As we look at the character of faith, just want to briefly mention a few things that faith is not. We talk about the faith as though it was this list of doctrines, and we can kind of go and, and have little tick boxes and say, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, and then we have the faith. That's not what this is all about. Okay. Or some people think that faith begins when knowledge ceases. You know, when I can't figure anything out, then beyond that, I have to just believe. There's lots of examples of that. But that's not what was being, what is being said here. Some people, I have the idea of faith as the power of positive thinking. You know, just believe. You can do it. You know, the little engine that could kind of a thing. If you just have faith, you can do anything. That's not what's being talked about here in Genesis 15 at all. Or the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard looked at it as an existential leap into the void. Just believe. You don't know what you're believing in. You can't even communicate what it is all about. You just believe. Some today think of faith as something that's a requirement for health and prosperity. You know, if you believe enough, you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be healthy and nothing is going to take that away from you. That's not what's being said here either. Many of us as Christians think that faith is a work. You know, if I believe enough, God's got to be pleased with me. And so we're constantly spending our whole Christian life trying to say, I've got to work up this faith. I've got to believe. I've got to believe. I've got to believe. On our own. That's not what faith is. But what is faith? The Hebrew word that's used here in Genesis 15, 6 for believe means a variety of things. It's actually the verb form of the noun for truth. It's the same word from which we get our word amen. When we say amen, we're saying truth. I believe that. That's that's what should be. What Genesis 15, 6 literally says is Abraham truthed the Lord. We can't do that in English, but you can do it in Hebrew. It's a verb form of truth. He truthed the Lord. It means he stands firm on what God has said. The idea of truth here is reliance and trust, as well as the characteristic of reliability and trustworthiness. In other words, you trust something or someone because they are trustworthy. Because they have shown themselves to be reliable, to do what they say they were going to do. 
The notion conveyed by this expression that Abraham put his trust, his confidence in God, he relied on God because of what God had said. He took God at his word, and he believed that that which God had said was going to happen. That's what faith is all about. Saying, okay, God has said this, I believe that, and it's going to happen. Not because of what I do and my manipulating the circumstances, but because God has said it. That's what faith is. It's truth in God. It's saying that God's word is truth, that God himself is truth, that God himself is reliable and true. And as a result of who God is, his word is true and the source of all our truth. Faith is not looking at the situation or the circumstances and trying to figure out how and when things are going to happen. And trying to make something happen on our own. It's looking to God's word and believing that God will always do what he has said he would do. It's saying that God is faithful. He will keep his covenant promises. It's saying that God is going to keep covenant no matter what. Here, Abram had no physical descendants. But Abram says, I believe. Physically speaking, he's an old man. That's not possible. But he said, I believe, because God's promised that. Faith lays hold of the promises of God's word and rests secure in those promises, no matter what the situation, no matter how impossible it might seem. Faith says, right, I have no idea how or when this is going to happen, and I know that I can never do it on my own, but I know who God is. And I know that he has revealed himself in scripture. And I trust him to be faithful to his word. And I lay hold of that and rest secure in it. Faith isn't a matter of positive thinking. Oh, it'll all work out in the end. That's not faith, not biblical faith. It's not jumping out in front of a a train and saying, Lord, save me. I believe you can do this. No, because God's never promised to save you if you jump out in front of a train. There's all kinds of promises in God's word. And faith lays hold of those promises and says, you will do these things. I know you will do them, no matter how impossible they they may seem. That's why when we come together for worship, we focus on God's word in scripture. We sing it. We pray it. We preach it. We read it. Because that's what our faith needs to grow and put down roots and mature. Faith is never faith in faith itself. It has a very definite object. Abram believed the Lord. For us, that Lord is Jesus Christ, the same Lord that Abram had in mind, as we've seen. It's all about the God of Scripture. And he wants us to be in relationship with him. So faith is laying hold of him and his word and saying, I trust you. I rely on you. Just as Abraham looked to the future, vague though that was for him in his day, And said, I'm certain because God has promised it. We can look back to the finished work of Christ and lay hold of that and say, we know. And we believe because of what Christ has done. And we can trust that. In conclusion, I want to leave you with an illustration that hopefully will help you to understand the specifics of what it is that faith is all about. I want you to imagine that you've done something rather Stupid. 
won't go into specifics of what it was. I'll leave you, your imagination to fill in the blanks on that. But as a result of this act on your part, you've incurred a massive debt of 32 million pounds. There is no way you will ever pay that debt. However, as you're mulling over how in the world you're going to deal with this, three people come up to you, and they make you an offer. The first person is someone that you know, but who has tried to hurt you in various ways in a number of, a number of times in the past. A person who has never, ever shown you any kindness at all, and who has been mean to you, and spread nasty rumors about you, just made life miserable for you. The second person is a complete stranger, totally unknown to you, someone who has never spoken a word to you. And the third one is someone that you know, a dear friend, maybe even a relative, who has always done what they have said they would do, and who has shown you kindness over and over again in the past. Someone who has been there for you and encouraged you time and time again. Now, the offer that all three make is quite simple. They all tell you the exact same thing. They say that they are going to take care of the debt for you. They don't go into specifics. They just say, we'll take care of it. Individually, each one. Now, you have to choose. Which one are you going to choose to believe, to exercise faith in? The person that you know but has treated you badly all your life? You're going to go, nah, he's probably got something up his sleeve, and I'm not going to get this debt paid. The total stranger, who you have no clue who they are, what resources they have available, whatever, probably not. Pretty much all of us would choose the person who has treated us well, who has shown themselves to be faithful, to be reliable, to be encouraging to us. But, beloved, God has shown himself to be just that when he sent his son to take our place on the cross. He's shown himself to be the one who can take care of all of our debts. And what he's asking us to do here in this passage is to believe in him, to trust him, to rely on him. That when he says, if you believe in me, I'm never going to cast you out, that that's true and will always be true. May God give us, each one of us, the grace to trust him, to put our faith in him, to rest in him, in the fullest sense of rest. It's not up to us. It's just going to him and saying, I trust you. That's what faith is. It's a renewing thing for us to do, to rely on the living God. May he give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We know what your word says, and yet so often we put it out of our minds, we fill our minds with all kinds of other things. We pray to the Lord that you would fill our minds and our hearts and our lives with your word so that our faith can lay hold of your word and grow strong. Grant us that grace so that we might trust you, our faithful Savior and Redeemer and King. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.